0: Hello and welcome to Step Through History. This story covers the formation of England from Athelstan to William the Conqueror. It contains brutality, generosity, sanctuary, miracles, monsters and more. I also took my camera out across the county to film this from some of the great locations mentioned. You can find that and more on my Step Through History YouTube channel. You can find a link for that in the description below. Okay, let's get on with the story. I hope you enjoy it. The year is 1069. Three years earlier, Harold Godwinson was defeated by Duke William of Normandy at the Battle of Hastings, bringing the end of Anglo-Saxon rule in England. King William, as he now is, is camped seven miles out from Beverley, east riding. William swore an oath to lay waste to the rebellious north, destroying wells, salting the land and slaughtering people and cattle. Northumbria had once been an independent kingdom. Even with the formation of England, Northumbria still retained a great deal of autonomy. The people would prefer their own rule, no matter how cruel or inept, to a West Saxon in the South. Sound familiar? So the idea they'd accept a Norman as their ruler is unthinkable. Groups of Norman knights on horseback... Had been sent out from the camp to kill the residents of local villages and cause such destruction that the land could no longer sustain life. This was genocide. One of the groups arrived back at camp, fewer in numbers, visibly shaken and carrying a paralyzed soldier. They relayed a tale of terror to the king, describing how one of the knights was turned into a hideous monster. Upon learning this event happened at the Church of St John, William declared that the lands of St John and the surrounding area are like a magic ring. Believing this act to be a miracle, he moved the camp further away. Not only did he leave the area free from further destruction and slaughter, he lavished gifts and rites upon the church. Such was his superstition. The story of the harrying of the north is more often than not rushed, providing little more than broad brushstrokes, sandwiched in between the ever-famous Battle of Hastings and a turbulent era of Plantagenet rule. History has little time for 1069, it seems. The story I have uncovered shows there was much more to William than piety, cruelty and military brilliance. To truly understand the events surrounding the monster in the Minster, and the harrying of the North, we must understand the culture, politics and history of Northumbria and Anglo-Saxon England. We begin our story in the 9th century, at the Church of St. John in the Kingdom of Northumbria. According to the Lurk Lane excavations of 79-82, a substantial Saxon site is present, though some of it extends beneath the current minster, so has not been entirely studied. The old church was surrounded by a ditch and rampart. An internal bank of clay extending from the ditch was topped with either a timber palisade or a hawthorn hedge. Overall, the defensive structures measured around 4.5 metres wide and between 4 to 5 metres tall, useful for keeping out wild animals or unwanted visitors, useless against any sustained attack. In the year 851, the church was abandoned. A coin hoard was buried on site for protection but never reclaimed. This could suggest the inhabitants of the church had been killed or simply didn't return. What we do know is this was the first time the Norsemen stayed over winter. The church was once again abandoned in the year 866, the year the great heathen army appeared, sailing up the Humber estuary. By the year 870, the ditches were overgrown and the walls were crumbling. The marauding Norsemen had utterly impoverished the area, and so went south to ravage the land in search of more wealth. Monks, clergy and nuns from the Order of St Columba returned to Beverley to restore the religious buildings to a state fit for the performance of divine worship. And it was noted that, uh, in this state of insecurity and comparative uselessness, it remained. High praise. There are two salient points to take from this so far. The arrival of the Norsemen would take Northumbria into a new era. The Anglo-Danish culture that emerged is the source of pride every Northerner has for their accent, dialect, place names and traditions. There was and is a dividing line between the north and south of England, and it wasn't simply Watling Street. The divide was cultural, political and linguistic. Northumbria would look to Scandinavia, whereas Wessex would look to the Franks in continental Europe. If we quickly rush forward to the Norman invasion, it's clear that William was not invading a homogeneous land and people, as we will discover. England and the English were far off becoming concrete and definable. By the end of the 9th century we have the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of Wessex and Mercia. The Danelaw consisted of the kingdoms of Northumbria and East Anglia, as well as what is referred to as the Five Boroughs, made up of Stamford, Nottingham, Leicester, Lindsay and Derby. The other point to consider at this time is that since the Northumbrian Golden Age of the mid-7th century, the start of the Christian faith in the area was influenced by Irish monks of Iona and not the church in Rome. It was the celtic model of christianity on display in northumbria whose influence spread further south when king Oswy of northumbria became overlord of most of the anglo-saxon kingdoms and if anyone was thinking alfred the great well he was never king of england he was king of the west saxons and in time overlord of half of mercia the other half being under scandinavian control nor was his son edward ever king of england along with his sister Ethel fled of Mercia, he wrestled back control of Mercia, conquered the five boroughs and accepted the submission of the Kingdom of East Anglia. Only Northumbria remained outside the West Saxon fold. I use the word conquer and not reclaim as Alfred's dynasty had no claim on the land outside of Wessex. It might be that their aim was not to rule over a predetermined area that they had earmarked as the extent of the Kingdom of England. They envisioned a kingdom of all the Angles and Saxons. This could be a clever and calculated strategy. If you have no claim on the land, claim the people and the land will follow. Edward's son, Athelstan, would be the one to finally unite, and I use that term loosely, all the kingdoms of the Angles and Saxons. Not everyone considers him the first king of England, but I'll lay my cards out on the table. I'm a huge fan of Athelstan, so I'm happy for him to take the title. By the time Athelstan ascended the throne in 920... Citric, King of Dublin and Jorvik, the grandson of the notorious Ivar the Boneless, controlled the land, formerly known as Deira. North of Citric's kingdom lies Benicia, centred around Bambra, or Bebbanbur, the only Anglo-Saxon kingdom to remain independent from West Saxon and Scandinavian control throughout this period in history. To further complicate the landscape of the north, we must also consider the Kingdom of Strathclyde, This stretched from southern Scotland to modern-day Cumbria and Westmorland. Considered a Brythonic culture, speaking a form of Old Welsh, there is evidence of a limited number of Anglo-Saxon settlements. Not only that, but the mountains of the Lake District in Cumbria attracted Norse settlers from modern-day Norway. No doubt it reminded them of home, though with a more comfortable climate. The Old Norse language was still in use in these parts well into the 12th century. Currently, we are 146 years prior to the Norman conquest, and the idea that there is a neatly packaged, clearly defined kingdom and people for William to conquer seems, to quote Malcolm Tucker, neither foreseeable nor unforeseeable. In the year 924, Alfred the Great's son, Edward the Elder, has died, and his kingdom is split up. Athelstan, his son, gained the kingdom of Mercia, and a very short time later, the kingdom of Wessex after his half-brother Elfweyard died just a few weeks after his father. The circumstances around the quick changes are debatable, but all that matters for this story is Wessex and Mercia were under the control of one person, Athelstan. Athelstan clearly had his eyes on the Kingdom of Jorvik. He would at first at least try to find a diplomatic way through this problem. He married his sister to Citric, known as the Squinty, to form an alliance. Some sources state that this was a non-aggression pact with a promise to help each other out in time of war. Other sources believe an agreement was reached in which upon the death of Citric the kingdom of Jorvik would transfer to Athelstan. Whatever was agreed shortly after the marriage in 927 Citric died and Athelstan moved quickly to claim the throne of Jorvik. This act wouldn't go unchallenged Relatives of Citric, based in Ireland, would raise an army to win back what they saw as their rightful inheritance. One of the claimants, named Godfred, was at the court of Constantine II, King of Scotland. No doubt asking the Scots for military support against the advancing and ever more powerful unified Anglo-Saxon kingdom, I doubt persuasion would have been too difficult. All rulers at this time would be keenly and nervously watching Athelstan's moves, There was a benefit in it for Constantine, too. A restored independent kingdom of Jorvik would provide a buffer zone between his kingdom and that of Athelstan's. Athelstan demanded that Constantine handed over the fugitive Godfred. Constantine refused, and when his diplomatic efforts began to fail, Athelstan resorted to his military might, marching on Scotland to punish their king. On his march north near Lincoln, he came across a company of pilgrims, singing and rejoicing. Athelstan inquired as to where they have been and why they are so elated. The pilgrims stated that they had come from Beverley, where by the merits and intercession of the glorious confessor, John. The blind, lame and deaf, and other infirm persons were restored to health. Athelstan's army moved north-westwards to York, whilst Athelstan himself took a detour across the Humber to visit the sepulture of the confessor, John. When there, he prostrated himself before the relics and devoutly prayed for his protection and assistance. Drawing his knife from its scabbard, he placed it on the high altar of the Church of St John and pledged that if he succeeds and returns alive to claim it, he shall honour the Church and increase its possessions. The churchman suggested that Athelstan take a token to show that he visited the sacred spot. When he arrived in York to link back up with his army, the banner of St John was proudly on display. It will not be the last time the banner was waved at the head of an army marching to war. From York they marched north, making camp by a river crossing on the Scottish borders the night before they were due to confront their enemy. Whilst alone in his tent that evening, a certain form, clothed in a pontifical habit, stood before him. The figure desired the king to prepare his army to pass the river in the morning in face of their opponents. Athelstan asked as to who this figure was, The figure replied with the name John, "'Pass then fearlessly with your army, for you shall conquer. "'For this purpose I have come to speak with you.'" The message was relayed to the troops, spurring the army of the Angles and the Saxons on to ravage the land up to Aberdeen, whilst the fleet caused mayhem and destruction right up to Caithness. Upon returning from a successful campaign against Constantine, Athelstan once more visited Beverley, and the Church of St John. He had his knife to claim and a promise to keep. Athelstan established a college of secular canons and endowed it generously with land and privileges. One of the privileges was the creation of a sanctuary, which extended for two miles around the tomb of St John. The limits of sanctuary were marked out by a ring of four stones placed at Leckenfield Park, North Burton, Kinwall Graves, and one location is unknown to us, but it's believed to be south of Beverly, near what was the Humber Ferry Crossing. The privilege of sanctuary was permitted to the perpetrator of any small offence for 30 nights if they have fled to the church. This gave the accused time to prepare a defence or admit their guilt. The idea behind this, I believe, was to stop citizens from rashly putting the accused to death through personal vindictiveness but instead brought to justice through an impartial trial according to the law of the land. To strengthen the rule of law, anyone violating the sanctuary by inflicting bonds, wounds or blows to the refugee was compelled to pay a heavy price to the officiating minister of the church. Please remember that fact, it is crucial to the story. Within the sanctuary church there was, and in Beverly still is, a frith stool with an inscription stating, this stone chair is called freedstool, or chair of peace, to which what criminal soever flies hath full protection. The individual claiming sanctuary would sit on the frithstool, and with one hand on the Bible, swear an oath. Sir, take heed on your oath. Ye shall be true and faithful to my lord Archbishop of York, lord of this town. Also ye shall bear good heart to the bailey and the governors of this town. Also ye shall bear no pointed weapon, dagger, knife, nay none other weapon against the king's peace. Also ye shall be ready at all your power, if there be any debate, or strife, or southern case of fire within the town to help seize it. Also ye shall be ready at the obite of King Athelstan, at the warning of the bellman of the town, and do your duty in ringing. After the oath, they will be required to kiss the book. And I'd like to thank the wonderful voice of Alfred Wanteig-Williams there. That was marvellous. Athelstan's gift helped rejuvenate the area around Beverley, in the east riding of Yorkshire. This new college of secular canons had new buildings with evidence of glaciers' workshops and lead works using industrial hearths used to create buildings out of stone and not wood. By 1050, the Archbishop added a high stone tower and levelled the ditches and other possibly defensive structures for new construction projects. The investment and development of the area at the start of the 11th century would have only been possible through peace and stability. Minsters are quite common in the Diocese of York, but what is a minster exactly? The word minster is derived from monasterium and housed monks, priests and nuns living a communal life. The minster would act as a sort of mother parish to the smaller religious establishments in the area. One of the most defining features of a minster was in its management. During the earlier Northumbrian golden age of the 7th century, Northumbria built its religious base and culture with the help of Irish monks of Iona, and not of those under the Church of Rome. Unlike the continental model, which would see a single figurehead, a bishop or archbishop, running the show, a minster was based on a Celtic model, in which the establishment was managed by seven canons, or culdees Unlike the bishops of the continental model, the culdees had no separate authority, land or income to the church. To see the advantages of this Celtic model, we need to look no further than the tyrannical Bishop of Durham. But I'm getting ahead of myself. He will come to the story later on. Beverley is first recorded as a Minster in Edward the Confessor's Charter of 1061-65, to which speaks of Sancta Johannes Minster and Minster life. Anyway, let's get back to Athelstan, first king of all England. <clears throat> but don't let his flashy self-declared titles of Rex Totius Britanniae or King of All Britain blindside you. On Athelstan's death in 939 we have 127 years to go before the Battle of Hastings and the idea of a clearly defined kingdom is still some way off as we'll discover as we now do a whistle-stop tour of the next century. Following Athelstan's reign his half-brother Edmund ascended the throne and had to reassert the crown's authority over Northumbria which was under the control of Citric's son Olaf, King of Dublin. Furthermore Edmund, whose reign which lasted between 940 and 946, had his army ravaged the land of Cumbria, seizing it from the kingdom of Strathclyde. According to the Anglo-Saxon chronicles, Edmund let it all to Malcolm, king of the Scots, on the condition that he became his ally, both by sea and land. Clearly Cumbria back then was seen as neither English nor of England. Athelstan's other half-brother, Eadred ascended to the throne in 946. At first, the Northumbrians acknowledged the rule of the West Saxon before proclaiming Eric Bloodaxe, son of the Norwegian ruler Harald Fairhair, king in 947. In 948, Edred punished the Northumbrians by ravaging the land, bringing them back to the West Saxon fold once more. This lasted until 949, when the Northumbrians looked to the Norse once more, in the form of Olaf Citrixen, king of Dublin, Olaf lasted just three years before being overthrown in favour of Eric Bloodaxe. Again, this really reminds me of that phrase when someone shows you who they are the first time, believe them. Eric lasted just two more years when in 954 he was expelled and then killed at Stainmore. That might be the end of the line for the Norse rulers of Northumbria, but it is clear through their actions and allegiances where the hearts of the Northumbrians lay. Despite that fact, the Northumbrians resumed their allegiance to Edred once more. Around a decade later, in 959, Edgar ascends to the throne as King of the English, receiving the kingdoms of Wessex, Mercia and Northumbria. And what does that say about the Kingdom of England right now? Moving forward again to the end of the reign of Ethelred the Unready, and things become even more uncertain. In the years leading up to 1013, Æthelred had been ineffective in dealing with the constant invasions, pillaging and plundering of Svein Forkbeard, son of the King of Denmark, Harold Bluetooth. So much so, the disillusioned Anglo-Saxon nobles reluctantly declared Svein Forkbeard king. Æthelred fled into exile, ending up in Normandy. Of course, the Northumbrians immediately accepted Svein as their first Norse king of England. The English? Let's not get bogged down in that right now. Svein died around five weeks later and the Anglo-Saxon nobles invite Ethelred back from exile in Normandy, as long as he promised to rule more justly. I'm inclined once more to point out that phrase, when someone shows you who they are the first time, believe them. Just one year later, in 1015, Svein's son Canute brings a fleet to the south of England to claim what he believes is his kingdom from Ethelred. What follows is a series of battles between Canute and Ethelred's son, Edmund Ironside, which culminated at the Battle of Ashingdon. A chronicler at the time mentioned the whole English nation fought for Edmund, noting Mercians, West Saxons and East Angles among the ranks. It's quite telling that the Northumbrians had been left out, although I believe they acknowledged Canute as king from the start, so it's no surprise really. Edmund Ironside fled to Gloucestershire. With Canute in hot pursuit. There was possibly one more battle around the area of the Forest of Dean, but afterwards the two met to negotiate peace. The now wounded Edmund Ironside would rule the lands south of the Thames, and Canute would rule the north. It was also agreed that upon either of their deaths, the other will inherit all. Funnily enough, one month later, Edmund dies, and Canute receives all the kingdoms of England that's Wessex, East Anglia. Mercia and Northumbria. We probably won't ever know the cause of his death, but it's hard not to be suspicious. Canute inherited the Kingdom of Denmark one year later in 1018, and then combined with Norway, sat at the head of a great North Sea Empire. I don't know about you, but however we define the Kingdom of England now, it feels like a less solid premise than it did in Athelstan's reign. The land of the English would remain under the rule of a Scandinavian, until the return of House Wessex in 1042. Edward, to be known as the Confessor, ruled until 1066, one of the most famous years in history. A year when we finally see a clear winner emerge over the tussle for what has been up till now a rather ambiguous kingdom. The Norwegians will duke it out with the Anglo-Saxons and the winner will take on the Normans. If you're interested, I have a video on Harold Hardrada, Tostig and Stamford Bridge for you to watch, but as I've said before, I won't be covering Hastings. There is more than enough out there for you to watch. I really don't know what I would add. For the purpose of this story, all you need to know is that the Norman, William the Conqueror, was the victor. And he had a kingdom to claim. And it's about time William entered the story. It was with him we began this tale, and it is he who binds the story together. Everything mentioned so far is relevant to what follows and it does make me think William would have known a lot about what has been discussed and maybe used it to his own advantage in his attempt to legitimise his rule, a theme we will see plenty of. William, Duke of Normandy, was crowned King of England on Christmas Day 1066. The coronation was conducted partly at least in the Anglo-Saxon tongue and in the Anglo-Saxon tradition by an Anglo-Saxon archbishop. This was also a tactic adopted by previous foreign rulers, Svein and Canute, and no one would claim they weren't kings. The next few years would see the Normans have to put down many a rebellion, and like we have heard many times before, the Northumbrians were more than happy to challenge their southern overlords. By 1069, a large Danish army was present in the north, possibly to secure important sites in anticipation of an invasion by King Svein II of Denmark. The Danes remained elusive, dragging King William across the country in pursuit, but never engaging in battle. The Northumbrians couldn't be trusted either. Twice William garrisoned York with Norman soldiers and twice they were massacred once William headed back south. The Norman grip on Northumbria was weak. The conqueror could yet lose it all. William needed to address his northern problem. He won't let his York garrison be massacred a third time. The king started by sending out small contingents of soldiers to do a sweep of the countryside for rebels, putting them to the sword and destroying their hideouts. The aim was to ensure Northumbria couldn't hide or sustain an internal insurrection or an invading army. The consequences of what became known as the harrying of the north is a famine and a slaughter that would see more than a 100,000 people perish, neither age or sex were spurred. The Doomsday Book of 1086 will give us an insight into the destruction of Yorkshire, which had been a fertile plain and now sat as a desolate waste. And waste was the word used to record places with no value, or human or animal resources. In the East Riding, Balmston, Drypool, Routh and Sigglethorne are described as such. The value of Pocklington fell from £56 to £7. Bridlington reduced from £32 to just 8 shillings. Burton Agnes also suffered a similar fate, reducing from £24 to 10 shillings. Elsewhere, Burstwick and Kilnsey dropped from £56 to £10, and the coastal settlements of Withensy and Hornsey fell from £24 to 10 shillings. There seems to be an anomaly sitting amongst the charred and barren land, The Church of St. John was valued in King Edward the Confessor's time at £24 and has only reduced by around 40% to £14. Do you remember the fallen soldier and the monster from the Minster from right back at the start? Let's go back and find out what happened around Beverley during the harrying. King William's army had pitched their tents seven miles from Beverley and began the destruction and slaughter of the local area. People fled with their valuables to the sanctuary at the Church of St. John. A group of soldiers gave chase, focusing their efforts on venerable men, sumptuously dressed, adorned with gold bracelets, who made haste to the protection of the sanctuary. The soldiers entered the town and met no resistance, and so followed their prey to the church. Once inside, and sat high on his horse, the knight, possibly named Thurstinus, raised his sword high in the air and charged after those who had sought refuge. The knight fell from his horse and broke his neck. His head snapped backwards and his hands and feet became distorted. Like a monster! Another knight became paralysed and struck down with an incurable disease. Or so it was reported. The fearful troops dropped their weapons and humbly besought St John to have mercy on them. Then they headed back to William's camp to regale the terrifying and ominous story. The King believed the act to be justice from heaven, interposed to prevent a sacred edifice from being polluted with human blood. William turned this tragedy into his advantage by exercising his political and not military might. His soldiers had violated sanctuary rights, which since Athelstan's time had specifically stated that ye shall bear no pointed weapon, dagger, or knife against the peace. Fearing a similar revenge on the rest of his army, he sent for a meeting with the church elders. William granted the Church of St John all liberties that had been conferred by former kings and princes. This was all confirmed by his royal seal. Further to this, so as not to fall short in his reparations, he decorated the church with valuables and granted extra land to its holdings. To finish, William likened the Church of St John and surrounding lands to that of a magic ring amid the most appalling scenes of cruelty, devastation and blood. He moved his camp further away from the Church of St John. The renewing of Athelstan's gift to Beverley was an astute political move, using legal precedent to cement his legitimacy as king, and what better way than exercising the same rights as previous legitimate monarchs. It's interesting to note that the renewing of Athelstan's gift in Beverley has been used by a number of monarchs who have reason to solidify their less than straightforward succession to the throne. Starting with an invading Athelstan and Duke William, Stephen of Blois and Henry Plantagenet also use Beverley as a political pawn in this way. The Normans took the vengeful act carried out by St John as a miracle. His miracles appear in many of my stories. My favourite, being an invading Scottish army, was kept out of Beverley, not by a massive army commanded by William de la Zuch and Lord Percy, but by St John and around seven bald men crying on the cobbles of the marketplace. In this story, the paralysed knight could have suffered a stroke. As far as the knight falling off the horse, I have to point out that one source describing the church as was tells of an unusual step within the entrance. But let's just go with the miracle idea, shall we? The land around Beverley, like the rest of the country, was distributed to William's loyal followers who had supported his campaign. Two particular recipients of his generosity will also shine a light on how William exerted his control. First up, we have Drogo de Brewer, 1st Earl of Holderness, who was a Flemish nobleman accompanying the Duke of Normandy on his conquest. Drogo not only received prime bog land in Holderness, where he built a motte and Bailey at Skipsea, he was also given William's niece in marriage. How did Drogo repay his king? Well, he's suspected of poisoning his wife, and it may be accidental, which is quite tragic, and then claimed the lands of St John as his own, with no way of substantiating the claims. The potential disaster was turned to the crown's advantage when the archbishop complained, using King William's own writ, in which he granted undisturbed possession of the land of St John. How could the king refuse? An opportunity to further cement his own authority. Drogo would disappear from record and his lands passed to Odo, Count of Champagne. The next Norman antagonist would provide William with another opportunity for a political masterclass. Valka? Walka? Walter, Volca? Anyway, he was the Bishop of Durham and granted the governorship of Northumberland. He was said to be covetous and tyrannical. His administration was marked by cruelty, injustice and oppression. He would sanction cruel murders for personal gain, then share the profits with his co-conspirators. This is not a power or direction the Celtic-style minster run by the seven Kuldees could ever have achieved. Anyway, to secure the bishop's fidelity to the crown, William granted him land in the county of York. It took no time at all for this maniacal bishop to use violence to seize property that came within his reach, including Welton, then owned by the Canons of Beverley. In their complaint, the Canons claimed the land as the gift of King William and of his confirmation. This is the type of legitimacy to rule that he has worked his whole life for, and a fine example of how he used Athelstan's gift to help cement his place on the throne of a cobbled-together kingdom with many claimants to its crown. Despite his cruelty, he was remembered as the Conqueror, and from being the Tanner's grandson to the King of England, a whole lifetime of fighting for legitimacy in one way or another, the name does seem apt. Well, I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you found something new out from this story as well. Uh, Obviously, the topic is William the Conqueror, so he's one of the more famous kings from history. It's well-trodden territory, and I usually avoid it, but um, I'd like to think there's something new to offer with this one. Uh, There's certainly some really good characters to follow up on. I'm going to look into the Bishops of Durham. Uh, They are tyrannical. And I certainly have Eric Bloodaxe in my sights. He is the combination of glorious name and utterly useless deeds that sort of attracts me to a tale. Um, Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed it and I'll be back for more soon. Until next time.